as much as I am? <laughs> I get to untuck my shirt, not even wear a tie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's a blessing to be part of God's family. Um, I don't know how, how much you, you value this as much as I do. Um, I remember the, it wasn't, I think it was one of my first classes. If not the first class, it was the first week of my class um, at the seminary when I was going there a couple years ago out in Michigan. And I realized that I was part of a global community. Um, I, I stepped into a classroom. There's what, maybe 15, 20 people in that classroom. The teacher wants to introduce herself, and then she wants to give the students a chance to introduce themselves and where they come from. And so I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm from California. I'm like the, you know, <laughs> the guy with an accent. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and um, anyways, as we're going around, all 15 students, as I realized, there were probably eight or nine different countries represented in that classroom. And I was like, whoa, whoa, no wonder that when I go out, this was at Andrews University out in Michigan, and when I go out, if you don't know, Berrien Springs, Michigan, that's, that's a little town. It's two stoplights big, okay? Two stoplights big. My wife had some culture shock, actually. We were like, this is it. <laughs> um, but there, at this center of education, this Adventist center of education, um, there were hundreds of countries represented. And in my classroom, I just had a little microcosm of that. that there, the, the courtyard, or the, the main mall, where there's this huge lawn, there you know, all these flags all around bordering that grass. And, you know, it's just a, part, it's just a beautiful thing to be a part of an international family. Um, the truth is that um, we all are brothers and sisters, um, especially through the purchased blood of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so today our message is simply entitled, All Nations. And before we get into our study, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this recognition that, that you are our Father. And Jesus taught us to pray, to, to not just call you my Father, that would have been a privilege enough, but to call you our Father and to recognize that there is an inclusiveness there, that it's not just about my relationship with you, it's about our relationship with you, and so today, God, we're approaching you, our Father. Thank you that we can look to you as the one who has made us, who has redeemed us, and who promises to remake us. Lord, we're asking that as we enter into this time where we open up the Bible, that these pages of Scripture, even if they're familiar passages, that it would jump out to us with new life, that you would cause us to hear what you want us to hear, that you would cause us to do what you're calling us to do. Would you please instruct us, God? Send us your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired these Bible writers to pen these words. Lord, send that same Spirit to instruct us as we study these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. 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 All right. Take your Bible, if you will. Maybe you brought one with you. Maybe you've got one on your mobile device. Maybe you can find one there in the pew in front of you. We're going to Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew is the very, very first book of the New Testament. It's that first gospel, the story of Jesus. And we're going to Matthew chapter 24 in which there are some specific issues that Jesus wants to instruct the disciples about. All right, Matthew chapter 24. When you found it, go ahead and say amen. Okay. 
Matthew chapter 24, you know very well, it comes right after Matthew chapter 23. (laughs) In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is also saying some very specific things, but he's actually, you know, maybe you have a subtitle in your Bible, but mine says, in Matthew chapter 23, it says, Woe! Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. That's not wow, that's woe, okay? Woe. Why? Because the leaders of the Jewish nation had gotten to such a point where their understanding of the true God had become so self-centered and self-insulated that they were not reflecting the character of God. And so Jesus needs to speak straight to them. Woe, you hypocrites scribes and Pharisees, and all these kinds of things that, that he spoke, I imagine, with tears in his voice. And at the end of Matthew chapter 23, he says in verse 37, you see that, Matthew 23, verse 37? It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing And notice the consequence of these things. Verse 38c, your house, speaking of the temple right there in Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate of what? Abandoned or forsaken of what? The house was to be a house of prayer. It was to be a house in which communion with God was very real. It was to be a house in which God's presence was manifested. And Jesus is saying, look, your house is empty. And notice he calls it your house, not the Father's house. What you've made of it. See, your house is left to you desolate, verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even in that very fact, even in that just admission, he's saying, look, I'm leaving. Your house is left to you desolate. And so Jesus says, hey, you're going to see me again, though. Even though your house is desolate, you're going to see me again. And the disciples are, are mystified by this. You know, everybody who's hearing these words, they sense that there's a, a weightiness to these words, and they're, they're wondering, what is Jesus really talking about? And in chapter 24, kind of on the coattails of this experience, the disciples are trying to cheer Jesus up. Maybe there is something that uh, he just needed to be reminded about in terms of the specialness or the sacredness of this temple. And so in chapter 24, verse 1, the Bible says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. You know, these, the buildings of the temple, that, it was a very uh, magnificent structure. Something to be reckoned with. It was, a, it was a great piece of architecture, something that was very solid. And then in Jesus, in, excuse me, verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. For the disciples who are listening to this, this is heartbreaking news. What? This house where God's name is? This house that is the very hope of our country, our nation, our people, the people that you have chosen to be uh, messengers of who you are, they're, they're, they're shocked. In verse 3 it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? 
You know, obviously they want to know, how can we be prepared for this? This is going to be catastrophic, tragic, and notice to what scale they think this catastrophe is. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the what? The end of the age. They think if the, if the temple's going down, the world must be falling apart, right? If, if the hope of our hopes is falling apart, then everybody's hope is falling apart. And obviously, when Jesus was speaking to them, he wanted to address their concerns. He, in his foresight, understood that the temple would, in fact, be destroyed in the year 70 AD. Jesus understood that even the prophet Daniel foretold these things, but he was foretelling them uh, as a distinct event from his second coming. We follow that today, right? I mean, we're on the other side of these things. We can see, obviously, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Jesus has not yet come, okay, as far as the second advent. But when Jesus is addressing their concern, he doesn't, he doesn't try to, you know, distinguish those things, those two events, but he does want to address their concern of, how can I know when the end is coming? <coughs> Again, their specific question, it says at the very end of verse 3, and what will be the sign? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And notice as Jesus begins to respond to that question, what, what should we look for? What are the signs of that coming? Jesus begins to express uh, some things that maybe you've seen in this world and maybe you've seen happen at an increasing and intensifying rate. It says in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. That's the first sign. There's going to be deception abounding before Jesus comes again. All right? Verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. Verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And notice what verse 8 says, All these are the what? beginning of sorrows. Maybe your version of the Bible says these are just the beginning of labor pain. Okay? That word for sorrows, or in the New King James, it's translated as sorrows. The Greek word there is talking about labor pains. This is just the beginning. This is when the contractions begin, so to speak. And just like, well, you know, obviously I don't know this from personal first-hand experience, although witnessing my wife going through this, uh, you know, contractions, they set in and they increase in frequency and intensity until that baby comes. And Jesus is saying, look, these signs are going to exist throughout human history, but the closer we get, the closer we get, the more frequent, the more intense will those signs be. Jesus doesn't try to give, you know, specific times. Okay, in the year 1538, then this kingdom will rise against this king. You know, at least in this discourse, he's not giving them specific, you know, a timeline of things, but what he is giving them an awareness of, of is when the end is near. Do we follow that today? Yeah? So he's giving them a sense that, hey, you can tell when it's coming close. You don't know exactly when that baby's coming, but you can tell when it's getting close. It's interesting that Jesus would use this in, in response to the disciples' question for a sign. A sign. It makes me think of that story in Genesis chapter 9 when God gives Noah a sign. Do you know what sign it was? In Genesis chapter 9, it was after the flood. They're, they're coming out of the ark. God gives Noah and his family a sign. 
It's a rainbow. It's a rainbow. And he says it's a sign of promise. It's a sign of promise. How would a rainbow be a sign for Noah and the human family thereafter? Every time they saw that rainbow, what were they supposed to remember? Well, sure, they would remember the flood, but even more than that, they would remember that God has promised not to do it again, okay? In other words, that sign, it didn't give them any specific data, but it did give them the assurance that God is faithful to his promise. In the same way, when Jesus is giving these signs, hey, this is crazy, crazy stuff. It's not giving us necessarily specific data, as so much it is giving us the assurance that God is still faithful to his promise. <coughs> Let me read something that uh, one historian and theologian, George Knight, he writes, so it is, talking about making a comparison of you know, the, the sign of the rainbow, it says it was a sign that God was faithful to his promise, so it is with wars, famines, and earthquakes. Each one is a remembrance of the earth's sickness and a sign that the faithful covenant-keeping God has not yet finished the plan of salvation. Each of these signs is a promise that Christ will come again to complete the saving of his people from their sins. Every falling star, every eclipse, every betrayal of trust is a sign that Christ will come again because his work is not yet finished. Wow. Sometimes we come to this, Matthew chapter 24, and we're looking for details and chronologies and timelines and stuff. Let me tell you, these are not necessarily time markers, but they are Jesus markers, okay? They're pointing to the one who is not yet done. He's got a work of salvation to do, and he's still doing it. Every time we see these signs, yes, yes, we get heart sick, and we're like, oh, but it, we, we should take it as an opportunity to lift up our heads because a redemption draws near. So one specific sign I want to zero in on is in verse 7. One specific sign, uh, just kind of taking this theme of international Sabbath. In verse 7, look at what the, one of the signs Jesus gives. It says, for nation will do what? Rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This isn't breaking news, right? Nation rising against nation. What's interesting here, to me anyway, is that the Greek word nation is actually ethnos. It's the, it's the word that we get ethnicity from, you know, ethnic. So what we're talking about when Jesus says nation against nation, we're not just talking about political government against political government. I think that could be found in the next phrase, kingdom against kingdom. But when he says nation against nation, we're, it's, it's a little bit broader than that. We're talking about ethnicity versus ethnicity. Culture group versus culture group. And now that we introduce that word culture, we're just thinking, hey, any classification that groups people together versus any other classification that groups people together. So it's kind of a, a broader picture. Do you understand that today? Yes or no? Yeah? And so, I mean, this can be generation against generation. This color of clothes versus that color of clothes. This ethnicity, that ethnicity. This region, that region. And Jesus is saying, look, when this happens, there's going to be a rising against one another. What does that mean? He's really just pointing to this seeking of supremacy. This exaltation of self at the cost of putting others down. The exaltation or pushing of one's own agenda, not just to protect their own, but to impose their own 
on others. And again, this isn't breaking news. We see this the world over. We see this within our very, you know, city. We see this within our very own neighborhoods. We see this even within our own homes. Rising up against another. And Jesus says, when you see this sign, recognize that there is a work of salvation that has yet to be finished. There's still a work to be done. When I see these signs, when I see all of these signs all around us, let's be honest, our response could be from one spectrum to another. Our response could be shrugging of the shoulders and just, ah, there's nothing I can do about that. Our response could be heartache and just a longing to do something, but a helplessness or powerlessness about it. Our response, maybe on the other side, could be, hey, superhero mode, let's do something about it, let's fix things. And let's be honest, maybe there's another response of not just activism, but even escapism. Just get me out of this mess, right? And a lot of times I think that uh, maybe we slip into this, whether consciously or unconsciously, when we see all these signs, when we think of the end, we just think to ourselves, self-preservation, let me just kind of get my way through this. But when I look at these signs and I I ask myself, okay, if that's my response, what is God's response to all this? When he sees one group rising against another group or this nation against that, this ethnicity against that, whatever, you know, what is God's response to that? You know, sometimes we long for the end because we just want to get out. We're in a self-preservation mindset. But God wants the end too, but maybe for different reasons. Sometimes it's not in the same way that God wants the end. Where we indulge a heart that is sick of the world, God has a heart that deeply loves the world. Can we be honest about that? <laughs> you know, when I, when I flip the news or, you know, when I'm just Googling whatever, oh, it's just like, oh, turn that off. I just kind of want to get out. But I wonder what goes to the heart of God. He's not trying to get out. He's trying to get them out. (laughs) Do you see the difference? One is, it's all about me. God's is all about them. There's a difference there, and I think it's real. Maybe it's just, uh, it's hitting me. But here in Matthew chapter 24, you know, these signs, they're all not, it, it all leads to this climax, actually. If you keep reading from verse 9 onward, you know, the signs get somewhat more personal, somewhat more intense, and, and it might even stir up even more of that self-preservation mindset, but notice how it climaxes all the way to verse 14. So let's start in verse 9. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Okay, so even at this point, we're just thinking, yeah, yeah, let's get out. Let's, get, let's put an end to all of this. In verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be, what's that word? Saved. Saved. You notice that when Jesus is giving all these signs, his drive is that people shall be saved. And in verse 14, the finale, and this gospel of the kingdom, not just those kingdoms that are rising up, but the kingdom, 
God's reign in people's hearts. This gospel, this good news of that kingdom will be preached in all the where? World as a witness to who? All the nations. And then the end will come. Let those words in verse 14 just sink in a little bit. This is kind of where we're going to sit for a little while because there's two huge realities, two huge realities about who God is right here in this verse. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Reality number one is God's heart for the nations. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Reality number one, God has a heart for the nations. And when we say this, we were talking about for the, those groups, the nations, the ethnicities, the, the culture groups, the classifications, the us's, the them's, all that. Those groups that rise up against each other, that are war-torn and heartbroken, God has a heart for those nations. And notice that key word, all nations, right? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, all the nations. In other words, this heart that God has for the world does not leave anyone out. Do you believe that today, yes or no? Maybe today you felt like you've dropped off the radar screen of God's mind. No, 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 no. God wants all to be saved. All nations, no one is left out. I don't know if we truly appreciate the largeness of God's heart today. You know, we sing that song, sometimes in Mandarin, sometimes in English, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We expect God to love everyone. But think about that. That, that demands an extremely large heart. We have a hard enough time loving the people in our own household. We have a hard enough time loving the people across the fence whose music is going on, you know. For God to love all the world, think about that, all the nations that are not just rising against one another, but even against him. Wow. Sometimes I think we expect him to just because, you know, yeah, we've sung about it, we've read about it, but really, can we even fathom that largeness of heart? A love that would send his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A love that would send his son. And then, in Matthew chapter 28, that son is sending the disciples to all the world too. <laughs> so it's a love that sends his son and even those who believe in his son into all the world. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you realize, friends, that God's heart includes all? That's good news to me. <laughs> That's good news to that struggling brother or sister. That's good news to even those annoying neighbors. That frustrating coworker. That person that you feel like is just an impossible situation for God. God loves them. And he desires them to be saved. So reality number one is God's heart for all nations. Reality number two, if you're taking notes, God's remedy for all nations. God's remedy. What is that remedy? There, it's right there, verse 14, the very first three words. And this what? Gospel. And this gospel of the kingdom. That, out of this heart for all nations, God says, hey, get this gospel to all the world. 
This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So God's remedy is the gospel of the kingdom. What is so effective about this gospel? Why would this gospel be the remedy for nation rising against nation? You know, all these different conflicts and things like that, the heartbreak, the, the war-torn areas, the, the wounds that lie deep within. How is the gospel, just this message of a crucified, risen, and soon-coming Savior, how is this idea supposed to heal? Paul writes about it, Romans chapter 1. Can you flip there really quick? Maybe keep a bookmark here. Go to Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, Paul understands the power of the gospel. He knows that it's more than just an idea to believe about. But it's the power of God. When you're in Romans, go ahead and say amen. So if you start in Matthew, you go Mark, then Luke, then John, then Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, let's read verse 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, Paul is writing in the first person. He says, For I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel. Literally speaking, that's good news. A declaration of something that's beautiful. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation for just those few nations who believe. For everyone who believes. Amen? And notice, just so that he's very clear to this, this, uh, this audience that might have some confusion about who is favored in God's sight, Paul gets very specific. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what's so effective about this gospel? It's the power of God to save. It's the power of God to heal. It's not just an idea. It's not just a message to write in a book. It's the power of God to save your heart and mine. The very things that cause us to rise up against one another. That is God's power to save. Friends, if, if ethnicities and culture groups and nations and kingdoms are to, to be redeemed, it's not through policies and politics. It's through the power of God to save. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Back in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, when he says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. In other words, it needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be sounded. The implication is that there, are, there may be a tendency to keep it silent. But God says, preach it. Preach it. Let it be known. Let it be known. But don't just tell about it. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a, what's that next word in your Bible? Testimony? Awesome, awesome. Mine says, as a witness. When someone stands as a witness in a court case and offers their testimony, what qualifies them to be able to, date, to, to say that? First-hand experience. They've been there, done that. They've seen it, heard it, felt it, touched it. In other words, this gospel of the kingdom, of God's reign in our hearts, of God's rulership over our lives and his redeeming power, it's going to be proclaimed not just as an idea, but as a demonstration, a witness in our lives. It's not something that we can tell if we haven't first received it. Yeah? 
We can't give it if we haven't received it. And that's why Jesus is getting at it. All the world as a witness. As a witness. It's something that is demonstrated, not something that exercises dominance, like the kingdoms that rise up against other kingdoms. And the result of all of this, when God's heart compels him to give God's remedy, the result of all of this, it says at the end of verse 14, and then, what? The end will come. So what's the result? The end. And some of us are saying, finally! <laughs> but that's not how God, you know, obviously it's, yes, it is the end, but it's not meant to be a doom and gloom type of thing. It's not meant to be an escape type of thing. The end is a proclamation of hope. It's not a sentence of doom. In the context, especially in verse 13, when he says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved, the end is the time of salvation. So when Jesus says, then the end will come, he's saying, then my salvation will be fully realized. Jesus purchased salvation on the cross. He said, it is finished. Yes, it is finished. Every merit, every uh, ounce of righteousness that was necessary to pay the debt, he purchased it on the cross. But it was not fully realized, or it will not be fully realized, until the presence of sin altogether is removed. Then the end shall come. And when Jesus says, then the end shall come, again, that's his whole goal. He wants people to experience the fullness of that salvation. The full salvation that all of those signs have kind of been pointing to. Hey, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And it's going to come soon. That end. That end will come. The end of sorrow. The end of suffering. The end of sin. The end of division. Amen. The end of rising up against one another. Then the end shall come. God's heart and remedy for all nations. It's right there. God's heart for the nations. God's remedy for the nations. But it's not just here in Matthew. It's not just a, a, you know, a, 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 an early church phenomenon. It is to be the phenomenon. It is to be the center, the focus, the hope of all of God's followers all the way through the end of time. Actually, if you follow it, it you find this remedy and, no, excuse me, God's heart, God's, God's remedy all the way into the book of Revelation. Can we go there really quick? Revelation chapter 5, this is powerful. Revelation chapter 5, we'll see God's heart and God's remedy in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 is where we're going to start. Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, and when you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right. In Revelation 4 and 5, if you know this zone of Revelation, John is receiving a vision of the heavenly throne room. He's able to see God sitting on the throne and those who surround the throne, these heavenly intelligences, and they're just crying out night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a powerful scene of worship. And then in chapter 5, there's this sense that there's something missing. There's this scroll that needs to be opened and this book that, that, that John sees, he recognizes that this is a book of great importance. Maybe it's the book of life. It, 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 in that book contains the destinies of humanity, but it's sealed shut. John is just waiting to see what happens in this vision. And there's this voice that says, who is able to open this scroll? In other words, who is able to give eternal life to humanity? In excuse me, Revelation chapter 5, notice in verse 3. Revelation 5 verse 3, the Bible says, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. 
And verse 4, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. John is encouraged. Ah, 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 lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He's realizing, hey, this is an Old Testament promise all the way from Genesis 49. They have been expecting this Redeemer to be able to set free humanity. John hears, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. When he looks, what does he see? Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Whoa, where's this lion? stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The king could be king because he was crucified. Having seven heads, excuse me, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This means salvation for humanity. John knows it. The rest of the heavenly intelligences know it. Notice what they start doing as a response to all this. In verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The blood of Christ flows to every land, every valley, every region, every heart. The infinite blood of Christ is able to save all nations. This is the heart of God right here in Revelation 5.9. With the infinite price of his blood, Jesus has already purchased every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. <laughs> All nations are his. He's redeemed. He's purchased us by the infinite price of his blood. And then in Revelation 11 verse 9, there's a little bit of drama to this because even though, even though Jesus has purchased every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, not every nation, tribe, tongue, and people is actually appreciative of that. In Revelation 11, verse 9, you see this scene where every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, that, that phraseology, those, those words are, are there again. Revelation 11, verse 9, when you're there, say amen. And it's in the context of, of these two witnesses, which are a, a depiction of God's word, but it's being refused and rejected by people. And notice in Revelation 11, verse 9, it says, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies. This is a a depiction of the the two witnesses really are symbolizing the word of God and they've been kind of cast down to the ground because people have rejected the word. And it says every nation from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see the, the dead bodies of the word of God three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. Notice verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth, speaking of those peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, will rejoice over them and make merry. So in Revelation 5, there's this picture of Jesus saying, look, I've I've spilt my blood to purchase every nation, to purchase every people group, to purchase every culture. But then in Revelation 11, 
they're ungrateful. They're refusing, rejecting, even making merry over the killing of God's word in their midst. It's a sad picture, but praise the Lord that God's heart is still large. God doesn't give up. You believe me? <laughs> believe the word? Revelation 14, notice what God does for those who dwell on the earth. I mean, if we really want to get, get specific about this, those who are dwelling on the earth in chapter 13, they actually end up worshiping after the beast, the Antichrist beast. Chapter 13, verse 8, their names have not been written in the book of life, but God is not content to let that be their destiny because in chapter 14, God sends them a message. God's heart, God's remedy. Chapter 14, verse 6, if you're there, say amen. Where is it? Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. God is not done with them. Even though they, he has purchased them, they, they ought to be grateful, but they're not demonstrating their, uh, an appropriate response to God. God continues to reach. God continues to pursue. God continues to hound, if you will. His heart is large. His remedy is powerful. It's the everlasting gospel. Kind of puts a different spin on everlasting gospel. Yeah? Not just the, the everlasting gospel like you know, from the beginning of time, but it's everlasting gospel that will keep going, keep reaching, keep wooing and pursuing. That's the everlasting gospel that's driven by the everlasting love of God. Jeremiah 31, 3, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you to me. Again, it's the everlasting gospel to remedy the need of the nations. That's the need. It's not policies. It's not politics. It's the power of God to save. That's the need. That's the remedy. And in Revelation 7, if we were just to flip back a few chapters, there's a, a scene in which... John actually looks, has a little glimpse. The other side of this earth, he's able to see redeemed humanity. And in Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with right robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a multitude of all nations. No one is left out. Praise the Lord that God's remedy is sufficient and that his efforts are not in vain. God is good. Amen? It's a simple message today. All nations. What is it about? One, it's about God's heart. God's heart is for all nations. Two, God's remedy God's remedy is sufficient for all nations. And again, when we're, when we're talking about nations, we're not just talking about uh, you know, kingdoms and uh, political governments and stuff. We're actually talking about groups of people, how you classify yourself, you know, the ins, the outs, the uses, the thems, the whatever. It's for all. It's for all. So what are the practical takeaways from this? If this is God's heart, the simple question is, what is our heart? <laughs> At the end of Revelation, chapter 22, this heart of God that continues to pursue, that continues to woo, 
This heart of God is actually adopted by God's people themselves. Revelation chapter 22. Go ahead and flip to it. It's the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. When you're there, say amen. amen. Notice Revelation 22, verse 17. 22, 17. The Bible says, And the Spirit and the Bride, speaking of God's redeemed people, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So, this, is, this has been God's invitation all along. Come! He's wooing. He's reaching to all nations. But here, at the end of Revelation, it's a picture of God's people joining with God's heart, saying, come. All right, I'll do it too. I'll extend the invitation too. And if God is extending to all nations, so am I. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, Come. Notice the next word, whoever, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's an all-encompassing invitation. Why? Because we have an all-encompassing God who loves. <laughs> so what's the practical takeaway here? First and foremost, embrace God's heart and remedy for all nations. Make it your own. Don't just say, okay, God, you can love all people. <laughs> you do it. But hey, if God is my leader, if I've asked him to take over the throne of my heart, then God will change my heart to give me a love for all nations too. Again, a love for all cultures, a love for all people groups, a love for those who are different, a love for those who are annoying, a love for those who are unforgivable, a love for those who are antagonistic, those who don't understand me, who don't get it. Whew. Now we're talking personal, right? <laughs> Embrace the heart of God for all nations. For all nations. Make that your own mission. Make that your own prayer. God, please, cause me to love as you love. Because that's a completely supernatural thing. Only God can do it. Only God knows how to take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So embrace God's heart, embrace God's remedy as our very own. Second practical takeaway, embrace one another. <laughs> Simple, yeah? And what, what, I'm, I'm using that word very carefully, embrace one another. Don't, don't give each other back-breaking bear hugs. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about embracing one another, not just tolerating one another. <laughs> I know, I know. Some of you are like, okay, someday this young preacher will grow up. No, 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 come on, come on, come on. Embrace me too. <laughs> no. Seriously though. Examine the, you know, the ways in which maybe I'm not rising against other people, but neither am I allowing other people to come close to me. Or neither am I actually taking steps to come close to other people. Friends, if we're going to embrace the heart and remedy of God for all nations, then I think it would look like being able to embrace one another. Again, supernatural thing. It's a miracle. Think about the disciples. There were, you know, fishermen. There were learned people. There were people who were considered betrayers of the country. And then there were those zealots who said that they would kill any betrayers of the country. And they were all together. And they hung out for three and a half years not just tolerating one another, but as they hung out with Jesus, they began to embrace one another. 
That's what happens. That's what happens when we embrace the heart of God. How many of you desire this today? Yeah? Amen. Amen. I want to bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you so much that your gospel of the kingdom is not just for some nations, but for all nations. God, I thank you today that your gospel of the kingdom is not just for some cultures, but for all cultures. That this gospel of the kingdom is not just for some generations, but for all generations. Lord, whatever the divisions, whatever the demarcating lines we might draw up in our own minds, we pray that you would give us a heart for all. We pray that you would give us a sense of the power of the gospel in our own experience, that we would be able to share that so that others would taste and see that you are good. Father, there are missions of mercy that we have been unwilling to go on. Right next door, across the street, down the hallway, the next pew over. There are missions of mercy that you want us to go on. And we have been unwilling. Oh Lord, give us the heart for all. Thank you, Father, for your great mercy. Thank you for this opportunity to celebrate, you know, an international Sabbath theme. We pray that over the time of fellowship, over food, and maybe even outside when we do our group picture, that there would be a healing of nations. That this wouldn't just be a, you know, a day for that, but that that would characterize our experience, our day-to-day experience. God, we thank you so much that you're able to do this, that your gospel is such that it can save. And so we want to be embracing that. We want to be sharing that. Please drive us with this kind of a mission, this kind of a vision that, that sees all of us belonging to Jesus Christ, valued and loved thoroughly equipped, joyfully involved in linking others to Christ. This is our prayer. In Jesus' saving name, let this family say amen. Amen. All right, friends. Hey, everyone's welcome to enjoy the international uh, potluck, and we would like to see as many people as can fit in the, maybe the grass out there, just outside the glass doors. Parkwood family picture. Maybe you're not in international garb. That's good. That's all right. But yeah, let's please, let's take a group picture together, if you will.